according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 10 is our passage this morning. John chapter 10, the Good Shepherd chapter. We're dealing with verses 1 through 21. We have covered one point of study in two sessions. Uh, to be fair, that one point of study had subpoints A, B, C, D, E, F, and subpoint F had three points to it. And uh, we're ready for point two today. As we looked at the doorkeeper at the end of our previous session, the doorkeeper opens the door for each shepherd. Each shepherd has personal ownership over certain sheep, but not others. We see that in verses three and four. The difference between the personal shepherd and the stranger. Each shepherd has personal names for each individual sheep. And then sheep from multiple flocks can be penned together at night, but will self-segregate in the morning as each shepherd leads them, leads them out. And why do they go out? Well, they go out to eat. They go out to feed. They go out to find good pasture. They go out to be watered. And they go out to be exercised. Uh, sheep are expected to actually do things, to actually live and walk and function and, uh, and operate in the world around them. Uh, sheep are not expected to simply sit there passively and get fed, 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 fed until they're uh, fat unto the slaughter. Okay. Which gets us to the door. I am the door of the sheep. John 10:7. Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And what we're going to focus on today is point two. I am the door. We've got some subpoints and some principles there. And that will set the table for the Good Shepherd in verses 11 and following. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure we are indeed uh, in fellowship with our armor on, suited up, and humble for truth. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together and to receive instruction, to be humbled, to be um, ministered to through the omnipotence and omniscience, the power of your word as it takes hold of our thinking. Father, we ask this morning that you would set aside distractions and turn our eyes uh, upon our Savior. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, the door message in verses 7 through 10 is what we're going to be focusing on. Again, verse 7, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. We're going to talk today about the thieves and the robbers and those who came before Christ. Then he says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's the purpose for going out is finding pasture. The purpose for coming in is the safety. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life principle of the Christian way of life is dependent upon us identifying Jesus Christ, not as the shepherd, but as the door. And if we can identify with Jesus Christ as the door, you and I can operate under the principles that will indeed promote the abundant life. That's what we want to focus on here today. All right. 
The I am the door message is the first. And he's had a lot of classes and he's had a lot of I am messages. But this message is the first to reference previous messianic claimants. Previous messianic claimants. And we're going to discuss that here this morning. What was the anticipation of Israel at the day in the, in the generation in which Jesus Christ uh, arose, in which he functioned and ministered? What was the expectation of Israel for their coming Christ? What was the excitement? What was the buzz? What were the expectations? And, and that is essential for us in understanding not only this passage, but so much of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. All right, so he says, all who came before me. Now, people get confused on this because uh, they want to put the all who came before me into, um, into, a, into the wrong context. And what, what, what does he mean by came? All who came before me. Uh, there, there has to be a significance to that if we're going to indeed agree with him to say that they all are thieves and robbers. Are we talking about uh, legitimate prophets? Are we talking about Moses and Samuel and David and, and Isaiah and, and all these guys, Daniel? You know, they were they came before Jesus, didn't they? So obviously there's something more at work in the word come than a lot of people want to pass over. They want to ignore the word come and just say, well, it's, it's just a general reference to teachers or maybe false teachers since they were thieves and robbers. Now, the all who came before me in terms of coming in the manner that he came, coming as uh, claiming to be the Christ, Moses and Daniel and, and all these guys, yes, they preceded him, but they didn't come claiming to be the Christ. So we understand all who came and you can put a little note in there in context, claiming to be the Christ. Okay? Or in other words, all who came, let's keep it in the metaphor here, all who came to the pen, to the sheep pen, with a shepherding claim of ownership to those sheep. See, uh, that's how we, we recognize that this is in a messianic claimant context. And the door message in verses 7 through 10 does not separate from the thief and robber message. As you notice, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. The sheep are designed to hear the voice of their shepherd. And it goes on to say, um, well, in, in the application there, the sheep did not hear them. And then the contrast, him to the thief who only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Anyway, the context here, I think we're on solid ground to be able to put a, a little star by all who came to understand in that all who came as a shepherd with an expectation that the door would be open, that the sheep would follow. In other words, all who came as claiming to be the Christ. Okay, that's the simple way to look at it. all who came claiming to be the Christ. And so then we were, uh, were, were left knowing that Moses and Daniel and Elijah and all these guys, they came before him. But they weren't thieves and robbers. They were faithful in their prophetic ministries. They were servants of the Lord and so forth. Uh, so I think that, that bugs a lot of people, that all who came before me were thieves and robbers. No, the context claiming to be the Christ. So again, this is the first message where Jesus references previous messianic claimants. And we know that there were several. I'm going to introduce you here to Thutis and Judas. Point B. Thutis and Judas. That's Thutis, T-H-E-U-D-A-S. And then Judas of Galilee. 
it's not, it, we should really separate them. They weren't connected. It's just, they rhyme. Thutis and Judas, it's easy to remember. But it's, it's not Thutis of Galilee, okay? It's Thutis, separate bad guy, and then Judas of Galilee. They are mentioned by Gamaliel as short-term messianic celebrities. Short-term messianic celebrities. Join me in Acts chapter 5. We'll take a look at them. Messianic celebrities. I think uh, we can probably correlate to current events in our nation in this present uh, political climate. Uh, one of the candidates is rather uh, celebrated as the Messiah, which I find interesting. See, and I, I'm not going to get political with you this morning and whoever you vote for, you know, between you and the Lord. But I find it remarkable how so many people are flocking after an image that really has no substance behind it. And if I can just speak eschatologically here for a moment, is it now becoming easier to see how when Antichrist is revealed, what a breeze he's going to have at, at hoodwinking the whole planet? Because the, the media is gearing up to do such a thing even today, if they have to, just to celebrate a messianic celebrity. All right, now in the context of Acts chapter 5, we're dealing in the early days of the church and Peter and John are just giving the, uh, giving the leaders here fits like Jesus used to do. The, the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are, are kind of left stumped with these guys like they were with Jesus in so many different applications. And um, they, uh, they're trying to get them to, to, to shut up. They order them not to say anything anymore and they disobey that because they have to be obedient to God. And, and there's other things here. They begin to realize that these idiots, these uneducated men, they call them, the idioti, uh, had been with Jesus and they've been well taught and that they're able to now have influence among the crowds because they are um, disciples of Jesus Christ and as such, they're powerful Bible teachers. Remember, the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't exactly exude power in their messages. That's what separated Jesus from those uh, other teachers. Now, in, in this, uh, Gamaliel actually stands up with a little bit of wisdom here. Now, this is Old Testament wisdom from the standpoint of, of Gamaliel um, and that. And a lot of people accuse him of being an unbeliever and dying and going to hell and so forth. But if he was indeed of an age and generation where he was saved in the Old Testament looking forward to the coming Christ, then uh, it'll be our blessing to meet him in glory. So picking up the reading here, notice verse 33. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care with what you propose to do with these men. This is a word of caution on his part. And then he illustrates. He says, For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. Now right there, that's your first clue. Because true servants of the Lord are indeed uh, those that aren't claiming to be anybody. That they are humble. They uh, humble themselves under the hand of God. They allow God to exalt them at the proper time. If they are making self-professing claims to greatness, that's a big clue. So Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Now, 
Josephus, if you read Josephus, uh, he also mentions a guy named Thutis, but he cannot be the same Thutis, all right? Although people assume that he's the same Thutis, and then they use that to attack Luke and his history. Uh, they use it to say that, see, the Bible's not accurate because uh, Josephus was writing 20 years, you know, 40 years later, and the events of Thutis um, happened in the 40s. And uh, this speech here between Gamaliel and the Sanhedrin must have happened in the mid to late 30s. And so they say, you know, the timing's all wrong. And Luke, uh, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. The Bible's not trustworthy. All right. Well, you only reach that conclusion if you start with an assumption that the two Thutises are the same. Uh, and, and there's no evidence of that, no proof of that. The only reason you, you want that to happen is to try to discredit the Bible. If you recognize there were multiple Thutises, like there were multiple Simons and multiple uh, uh, Judes and Judases, uh, some of these names are, are very frequently repeated. Then the, the problem actually goes away. So uh, this Thutis is not the same as the one that Josephus mentions. Uh, they both claimed uh, to be Christ. They both came to terrible ends, but uh, otherwise the, the descriptions are not even close. So he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. See, all the Thutis uh, followers, the disciples of Thutis, yeah, lost their enthusiasm once the leader of their movement was, was, was killed. Same thing with Judas. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census. Now, he we know about better than this other Thutis because we have the biblical record. We also have the secular record, Josephus and others. And uh, this Judas, there's no question about this Judas, Judas of Galilee. Um, and this is interesting here as well. Uh, during the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all those who followed him were scattered. That's true and not true. You can debate this. It's interesting that Gamaliel has this opinion. The immediate followers of Judas were scattered. But there was a subsequent political movement that came out of it that continued to exist to the day. They became the, the, uh, the zealots. The party of the zealots had their origins in the original followers here of Judas of Galilee. So maybe not the immediate followers, but the, uh, the philosophies espoused therein uh, came to coalesce into a political movement known as the zealots. So Gamaliel goes on to recommend, in this present case, I say to you, let's just let history repeat itself. Let's just watch what unfolds. Uh, this Jesus of Nazareth guy is going to turn out to be just like Thutis and Judas, is that uh, we successfully killed him, so now we're fine. Uh, these followers are going to you know, have a, a day or a moment in the sun, but they'll peel away. They'll, they'll dissolve away. You know, interest will wane because uh, some other celebrity is, is, is on deck. There's always another fad on the way, always another celebrity ready to start attracting people's attention and things. That's why we don't get all riled up and excited about uh, Purpose Driven or, uh, driven or Jabez or all these other things and all the, well, why, why get excited about it? It'll be something different next year. People will get all wrapped up around this new thing coming out. He then even makes a telling statement here where he says, uh, in this present case, stay away from these men. Let them alone. If this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. Then he says, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. And it's a remarkable statement because there's divine viewpoint in that. 
If, if this is not from God, then it's not going to stand anyway. Don't get worked up over it. And if it is from God, then we need to evaluate our thinking because we don't want to be on the wrong side of what God's doing. So they took his advice. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they counted a blessing, just a quick flogging, and, and you may be about your business. All right. So here's a couple of glimpses we have as to messianic claimants. Okay. Um, the book of Acts also mentions a little bit later on there was a certain Egyptian in Acts 21, 37. He's left unnamed. We don't know what his name was, but he was a certain Egyptian. And at first, because all the turmoil is going on there, when Paul's arrested, there's a suspicion that maybe they finally had caught this Egyptian they've been looking for. Acts 21.37 The Apostle Paul now under arrest before a Roman uh, judge and as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And the commander is pretty surprised, actually. He says, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian, who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. And Paul said, oh no, wrong guy, that's not me. I am a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. So when he given him permission, Paul standing on the stairs, uh, motioned to the people with his hand. And uh, when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. And then uh, his speech then is recorded in chapter 22. So this certain Egyptian, uh, the leader of the assassins and the different things there, uh, again, is uh, indicative of the turmoil of this particular age, both before, right about the time of Jesus' birth, that was the time of the census, and then through the time of his childhood into his ministry and beyond his ministry for the first few decades after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There was a lot of turmoil amongst the Jewish people. Even after the temple was destroyed in the subsequent centuries, there was turmoil. The final destruction, which wasn't 70 AD, there was a national dispersion that took place in the early 2nd century, the Bar Kokhba um, revolt, rebellion. And that was another false Christ. That was a, a, a Jew that stood up to say, I'm the Christ. And finally, the Romans, uh, you know, put an end to it. And we have, oh, you've got Masada and all the other um, battles associated there. Now, if you ever want to read Edersheim, I do recommend Edersheim under point C. Edersheim mentions the general messianic hopes that were thriving at this time in Israel's history. And um, although they, not every author actually used the Hebrew Mashiach, not everybody was, uh, the term Messiah was not as uh, popular, was not as frequent, but the concept certainly was. And not in terms of the remission of sin or the kinsman redeemer, but in, term, in political terms, in terms of, the, uh, the breaking the bonds of Rome and elevating the throne of David. Those expectations were through the roof. And in some cases, they used the term Messiah. In most cases, they used the term King. They used the term Son of David. They were, they were politically minded, anticipating a restoration, the end of their Gentile uh, humiliation and the, uh, the exaltation of the throne of David. I mean, they had the, the message of Daniel. They understood the sequence from Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome 
They watched it all unfold in the recent centuries. They're, they're watching even now the dominion of Rome over them. They're also able to count the 69 weeks as Daniel had promised, 70 weeks from the issuing of the, of the decree. All right. And by the way, that was really, really a bother to the Talmudic authors and to the medieval Jewish rabbis because they knew that they had to do something different with Daniel. They couldn't take Daniel literally. If they took the 70 weeks literally, then they recognized that that coincided with the first century, that that coincided with the second temple period, that coincided with that, uh, that fellow out of Nazareth, and they didn't want to even think about that. And so the Talmudic scholars and the medieval Jewish scholars universally found ways to discredit Daniel. They found ways to dispute the literal hermeneutic in the book of Daniel. And they even successfully moved Daniel out of the Nevi'im, the, the prophets, and put him over into the Ketuvim writing history portion of their Old Testament. And so uh, the reason why Daniel appears with uh, the histories, why he appears with Esther and Joshua and Kings and the history portion is because the uh, Talmudic rabbis and the medieval rabbis successfully relocated him away, that book, out of the Nevi'im, out of the prophets portion of the Old Testament. So um, a lot of this was, was on people's minds uh, at the time, ahead of time, and even after the fact. It, uh, it's really not disputable. Let me read this little clip out of Edersheim so you can get a, a sense for it. I even colored it yellow. So I, In the past, I've gotten to my clips and I said, now what was I going to read again? I couldn't remember. So this time I said, okay, I'm going to outsmart myself. I'm going I'm to color this yellow. All right. Um, I guess I won't back up prior to that. This is just a portion. This is Sketches of Jewish Social Life in the Days of Christ and uh, by Alfred Edersheim. Such blessings and much more were not only objects of hope, but realities uh, alike to the rabbinist and the unlettered Jew. So to the rabbinist, the scholar, the expert in the law, the scribe, the Pharisee, and so forth, as well as the unlettered Jew, the basic uh, workman on the street. He had promises. He knew that God was faithful to David. They determined him willingly to bend the neck under a yoke of ordinances otherwise unbearable, submit to claims and treatment against which his nature would otherwise have rebelled, endure scorn and persecutions which would have broken any other nationality and crushed any other religion. To the far exiles of the dispersion, this was the onefold. Israel, God's sheep. This was the one fold with its promise of good shepherding, of green pastures and quiet waters. Judea was, so to speak, their sacred camp, their Campo Santo, uh, with the temple in the midst of it as the symbol and prophecy of Israel's resurrection. The fact that Jerusalem was rebuilt, the fact that the Persians not only sent them back under Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, but even funded the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls, the existence of the Jewish people and the existence of Jerusalem was all the evidence they needed that God was true, that his word would be fulfilled. To stand, if it were but once, 
within its sacred courts to mingle with its worshipers, to bring offerings, to see the white-robed throng of ministering priests, to hear the chant of Levites, to watch the smoke of sacrifices uprising to heaven, to be there, to take part in it, was the delicious dream of life, a very heaven upon earth, the earnest of fulfilling prophecy. That's why they made this pilgrimage with such hope, with such expectation. And, and this, was, this was thousands of years of their history and their culture all bundled up into their national existence. No wonder that on the great feasts, the population of Jerusalem and of its neighborhood, so far as reckoned within its sacred girdle, swelled to millions, among whom were devout men out of every nation under heaven. And that listing from Acts 2 telling you all the nations that were coming there on the day of Pentecost. Or that treasure poured in from all the parts of the inhabited world. And this increasingly, as sign after sign, seemed to indicate that the end was nearing. See, they're watching current events. They're watching Fox News. They're watching the Russians invade Georgia. They're watching all this stuff going on and saying, Ooh, we must be in the end times. Okay. And uh, even better than anything we can actually do, they are the subjects of end times prophecy. They have the sequence of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. They're living under the dominion of Rome. They're counting the weeks from the issuing of that decree. They've reached week 69. And, and the promise was 70 weeks. 77s. All right. So the expectation is there. And, and they had every right to have that expectation. And in fact, the expectation was accurate because Jesus Christ walked this earth. Surely the sands of the times of the Gentiles must have nearly run out. The promised Messiah might at any moment appear and restore the kingdom to Israel. Even the disciples asked that. Even after the death and the resurrection and finally like, oh, okay, well, you, boy, you sure put us through all this stuff, Jesus. Okay, glad you're back. Glad things are fine. Now are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? See, all of the messianic expectations about the crushing the serpent's head, the, the seed of the woman, the redemption of, of humanity, the, the uh, solution to sin, all of that disappeared. The spiritual dynamic disappeared next to the political dynamic of whooping up on the Gentiles. Right? Yeah, now, throne of David, authority, sovereignty, this cosmos world, we're going to rule. And that took center stage. So much so that the suffering Messiah, we don't even want to think about it. Sin? No, we're not sinners. Those Gentiles are the sinners. We're going to treat them like tax collectors, Gentiles, and sinners. We're God's people. So the promised Messiah might at any moment appear and restore the kingdom to Israel. In fact, Josephus tells us you can't even count the number of Messiahs that stood up to say, follow me. There were too many of them. From, what, from the statements of Josephus, we know that the prophecies of Daniel were specially resorted to. They were especially resorted to. You imagine, they must have been reading them constantly over and over and over again, including, by the way, a very key passage in Daniel 7 where the Son of Man ascended to the Father's throne was presented before the Ancient of Days. And the kingdom was delivered to the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days. And of all the titles that Jesus Christ ever used, the one that they hated more than anything else when He said, the Son of Man has come to, to lay down His life. They said, we, we don't like that. The Son of David, we're okay with. Son of Man? No. Who is the Son of Man? 
So, the prophecies of Daniel, this is according to Josephus, we know that the prophecies of Daniel were specially resorted to and a mass of the most interesting, though tangled apocalyptic literature dating from that period shows what had been the popular interpretation of unfulfilled prophecy. There were so many apocryphal works, the book of Enoch, uh, lots of different apocalypses that kept getting revealed. And, and, and we reject all of it, of course. None of it's biblical. But the fact that it exists and the themes they wrote on is testimony to what was on their mind. What were they expecting? The oldest Jewish paraphrases of the scripture, the Targumim, because spoken Hebrew had, had uh, diminished and the majority of the population spoke Aramaic after the captivity. Well, the Targumim were the uh, Aramaic paraphrases and commentaries on the Hebrew scriptures. They breathe the same spirit. Even the great heathen historians note this general expectancy of an impending Jewish world empire and trace to it the origin of the rebellions against Rome. Not even the allegorizing Jewish philosophers of Alexandria, Philo is one of those, not even the allegorizing Jewish philosophers of Alexandria remained uninfluenced by this universal hope. Outside Palestine, all eyes were directed towards Judea, and each pilgrim band on its return or wayfaring brother on his journey might bring tidings of startling events. Within the land, the feverish anxiety of those who watched the scene not unfrequently rose to delirium and frenzy. Only thus can we account for the appearance of so many false messiahs and for the crowds which, despite repeated disappointments, were ready to cherish the most unlikely anticipation. Why do you put up with disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment? Because the promises are, are grounded in, what, in God's faithfulness. It was thus that a Thutis could persuade a great part of the people to follow him to the brink of Jordan. Now this is the Thutis that Josephus records, not the Thutis of Acts 5. He took everybody, he took all the crowds out there to the Jordan. He promised he was going to part the river Jordan like Moses had parted the Red Sea convinced a great part of the people to follow him to the brink of the Jordan in the hope of seeking its waters once more miraculously divine, uh, divide as, more, uh, as before Moses and an Egyptian imposter induced them to go to the Mount of Olives in the expectation of seeing the walls of Jerusalem fall down. That uh, like uh, the walls of Jericho fell down. So uh, this Egyptian guy went up to the Mount of Olives and had everybody looking at Jerusalem and they were going to give a mighty shout and watch the walls of Jerusalem fall down. Well... Neither happened, and the men were exposed as being frauds and, and put to death on the spot. Nay, such was the infatuation of fanaticism that while the Roman soldiers were actually preparing to set the temple on fire, remember Titus had the whole place surrounded, and they're ready to burn the place to the ground, a false prophet could assemble 6,000 men, women, and children. They went to the temple courts, and porches to await then and there a miraculous deliverance from heaven. Did it happen? No, they burned with the temple. Nor did even the fall of Jerusalem quench these expectations till a massacre more terrible in some respects than the fall of Jerusalem extinguished in blood the last, republic, the last public messianic rising against Rome under Bar Kokhba or Bar Kokhav. You can pronounce it different ways. You ever want to read about the Bar Kokhba rebellion and the other aspects of that? It's fascinating Roman history, but um, 
beyond the scope of our study here today. And when Edersheim does go on about these messianic expectations and different aspects of it there, but that will serve to illustrate what we're dealing with on this. All right, so that's Edersheim. There's also a good article in the Dictionary of Jesus and His Gospels. Did I include that? I did not. The Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels also includes a good article. Hmm. And I left it out of my slideshow. Well, I'll bring it next week. Point D. Back to our text. Jesus' function as the door introduces a new metaphor. When he said, I am the door, there was no Old Testament passage that he was quoting. There was no prophecy that this fulfilled. There was nothing that had previously said that, uh, you know, when the virgin-born son of David is born in Bethlehem, that he would claim to be a door. Okay. There were a lot of aspects of, of, of the first advent that were prophesied, and he fulfilled every single one of them. But there were other aspects that were not. This is included amongst the ones that were not. His function as the door introduces a new metaphor where believers can more fully operate. This is a description of our priesthood here in the church age. Where believers can more fully operate in greater fulfillment of Hebrew Scripture shepherding passages. We can more fully operate, church-age saints can more fully operate in greater fulfillment of shepherding passages. Now, there's, Hebrew Scriptures had shepherding passages. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 119, I mean, we got countless shepherding passages. Isaiah 40, Ezekiel 34. Uh, Zechariah has shepherding passages. There, there are shepherding passages. Genesis. And Old Testament saints operated under shepherding passages. But not to the extent you and I can. And the difference between their understanding of the shepherding passages and our understanding of shepherding passages actually becomes clear when you understand the metaphor of Jesus Christ as the door. That he is the personal agent of God through whom we function. Through whom and in whom we function. Again, the outline point D, Jesus' function as the door introduces a new metaphor where believers can more fully operate in greater fulfillment of Hebrew Scripture shepherding passages. So, you have a passage such as John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, impact thereon through me, he will be saved, will go in and out, and find pasture. Now, there is shepherding uh, application here that then gets expanded in the I am the good shepherd message. But that shepherding is unique now by virtue of Jesus Christ as the door. And you'll see that here in a moment. Of course, there's Psalm 23 for your Old Testament um, reality. All right, let's look at Psalm 23. This is one of the passages I taught to the Ukrainian students in Kiev. 
the first time I went to Kiev when I was asked to teach Hebrew poetry to Russian and Ukrainian speakers. <laughs> who Some of them didn't have very good English skills. A handful did. And you know, it, was, it was fun. Speaking in English with a Russian interpreter teaching Hebrew poetry. But it worked out. Because it's the Bible and the Holy Spirit does the teaching and that's, that's the truth of it. Alright, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Nine words in the English, how about that? Four in the Hebrew. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside quiet waters. Every one of these verses, multiple English words, very short expressions of Hebrew poetry. So there is a shepherding application and Jehovah is the shepherd. David understands that. Old Testament believers understand that. Job understood it. Abraham understood it. That not only is God our creator responsible for our existence, but he's also uh, our caretaker, our shepherd responsible for our continued provision. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. There is a principle there of rest. And with that rest, of course, is a guarantee of safety. If the sheep is laying down, if the sheep is resting, if he's sleeping, then he's not looking around for lions or bears or wolves or anything. He doesn't have to. Why? Because the shepherd's in charge of that. That's the shepherd's job. Now, this relates directly, of course, back over to John 10, where the sheep is safely in the, in the, in the fold. But what's different in John 10 is that we have the introduction of a new Metaphor, a new concept of actually not only having a shepherd, external shepherd, watching over us, the God of the universe, Jehovah, but we actually have a vehicle through which that shepherding takes place. See, the sheep is shepherded by Jehovah in Psalm 23. But the sheep does not enter in through the door, which is God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's John 10. That makes sense. There is a there is a dynamic that is unknown to the Old Testament saint, and it's a dynamic of uh, identity, a dynamic of positional truth, of entering through the person of Jesus Christ. All right. So he leads me beside quiet waters. Okay. Well, if he's leading me, now I'm not laying down anymore. Now I'm walking and I'm following where he goes. And if there's no water here. Uh, or if the water here is too rapid, then he's going to lead me to a different watering spot where the, uh, the flow is, uh, is more quiet to where I can actually drink without getting swept away in the current. And he's going to take me where that water is. That water is not in the sheepfold. The water is out there somewhere. Now again, an Old Testament saint understands that Jehovah, the Lord, is going to lead them into shepherding. He's going to lead them. But he doesn't understand that the reality of the door in terms of he has to once again pass through the door to begin his journey. You're passing through the door coming in. You're passing through the door going out. And every shepherding function operates through the person of Jesus Christ. The sheep passing through the door. That's what becomes unique. He restores my soul just in case you think that everything in shepherding is in terms of food and drink and earthly stuff. It's not. It's the spiritual dynamic of the soul. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but um, power. 
He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Now, that's a huge comfort to an Old Testament saint, but take it a step beyond that. Beyond being with me, how about being in me? How about me passing through the person of Jesus Christ? Passing through to find rest and passing through to find food. Both in and out. I occupy with the person of Jesus Christ through whom I operate. I, I fear no evil for you are with me. Love God being with me, but I love it even more that God is in me and that I'm in Him. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and and loving kindness or mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a kind of a dichotomy there in verse 6. Where all the days of my life is um, one aspect, and then will dwell in the house of the Lord forever is a secondary or future aspect. It's much different in our time when we are presently, even right now, already in that house. So, some principles on this. David understood the faithfulness of Yahweh or the faithfulness of Jehovah. To personally shepherd him. David understood the faithfulness of Jehovah to personally shepherd him. Not just David, all the Old Testament saints. Moses, Abraham, Jacob, all the shepherds of the Old Testament understood that their occupation was a picture of Jehovah's shepherding care over the nation of Israel. What they did not understand and had no way to understand because it's mystery doctrine reserved for our present stewardship. Point two. David could not understand the positional truth of being in Christ. In Christ. That is unique to our stewardship. En Christo in the Greek. In Christ. Ephesians develops it thoroughly. All the New Testament. The epistles that that speak of our blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Alright? David's blessings are not in the heavenly places. David's blessings are a part of the land grant, a portion of Israel granted to the tribe of Judah, granted to his clan, his family, his position in the earthly covenant nation of Israel. Uh, Abraham was indeed looking for a city with foundations, uh, looking for a city whose architect and builder is God, but they were looking for that city to come down and be established upon this earth. All of Israel's promises are earthly promises. And whatever access they have to heaven will be uh, either under a a Jacob's Ladder principle of uh, commuting and visits, but with the recognition that their dwelling place is on the earth. David could not understand the positional truth of being in Christ or the paterological truth. And to be honest, this is lost to a lot of church age saints too. The paterological truth of coming to the Father through the shepherding son. 
the pateological truth of coming to the Father through the shepherding Son. There we have John 10.9 combined with John 14.6, both of which use Jesus Christ as the vehicle through which church-age believer priests uh, reach the Father. Again, a lot of church-age saints overlook this. Some doctrinal churches overlook this, where the aspect of the Christian way of life kind of ends with coming to Christ, coming to Jesus. And if you come to Jesus, then... You're saved, you have eternal life, and that's kind of the, the totality of everything is just getting saved. Well, you get some Bible study in, you learn some things, you realize that coming to Jesus is, uh, don't get me wrong, it's great, it's, we need it, and I, I praise God for it eternally, but it is step one of the rest of your Christian walk. Salvation is not the end of God's plan. It is step one for the abundant life He has for you, which is not just coming to Jesus, but through Jesus, coming to the Father. John 14, 6. John 14.6 where uh, my daughters make up two-thirds of the verse. I don't know if Sharon will let me name a daughter Hadas or that will ever have a Hadas. And Hadas just doesn't sound feminine and attractive. I'm... No. <laughs> Hadas, Hodas, that's even worse. Hadas. It's just not an attractive feminine name. Not like a not like Alethea or Zoe. Alright. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And we discuss faith in Christ, and faith in Christ, of course, is the provision for eternal life. But faith in the Father. How do we apply that? What does that result in? What is the consequences there? Is that what it's talking about when it says we walk by faith and not by sight? Is that the, the, uh, the walk for the fruit we're supposed to bear, abiding in Christ to bear fruit for the Father? Okay. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How uh, do we know the way? This then introduces the I am statement of John 6, 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the Hadas, the Aletheia, and the Zoe. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, what we want to recognize is coming to the Father through the Son is more than simply the moment of your salvation. Coming to the Father through the Son, yes, your salvation experience, the event that, uh, that where you received eternal life, whenever that was, and yeah, September 1973 was mine, whenever yours was, that you came to Christ. Uh, you came to the Father through Christ. That is true. However, is that the last time you've approached the Father? I hope not. Every prayer is supposed to be an approach to the Father through Jesus Christ. All right. In fact, your entire priestly function is not to Christ. He's the high priest with us in our priesthood as He and we together approach the Father. So no one comes to the Father but through me. The coming is a continuous coming, a repeated coming, a pattern that we have throughout the entirety of our Christian walk. Now, 
Could David have a clue what this is about? Not from an Old Testament perspective. He would have understood Yahweh. He would have understood, uh, or Jehovah, as we understand, the Lord God of Israel, the I Am of uh, Redeemer of the nation of Israel. Um, and he, clearly he understood prayer. He understood shepherding. He understood a lot of these things. But the idea of the door was not was withheld until John chapter 10. It was withheld until Jesus Christ and his prophetic ministry in obedience to the Father proclaimed the I am the door message. That beyond anything an Old Testament saint ever dreamed of would now come shepherding activity through God the Son. Through God the Son. And this is not just the one-time event of getting saved. Because that's a one-way only door. That's going in and staying in and being forever in and being forever saved. John 10 talks about in and out. And you're going through the door each way. You go through the door for the safety of the pen at night, for the rest and protection and, and, uh, and uh, restoration of strength that happens while you're sleeping and resting. And then when, it's time, when the sleep time is over and it's time to get back to feeding and drinking and, and exercising and walking and working and living, once again, it's through the door. It's through the person of Jesus Christ that we live and breathe and exist and have our being. All right. So this is a new opportunity. This ought to be a huge excitement to the nation of Israel in this day. Because something greater than the law is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the Sabbath is here. Something greater than David ever wrote about is here. And it's being offered to them. And they're going to crucify him. The door principle is further developed by the author of Hebrews as the veil principle in Hebrews chapter 10. The door principle is further developed by the author of Hebrews as the veil principle in Hebrews chapter 10. So let's look at that. Hebrews 10. It's the same principle. It shows that the person of Jesus Christ is the being through whom we pass in order to enter into a position or into a place whereby these activities can take place. In John 10, the metaphor is uh, pastoral, is shepherding. In Hebrews 10, the, uh, the scope of the picture is a temple. It's priestly. But the principle is still the principle. Okay, a door is a door, whether it takes you into a sheepfold or it takes you into a temple or it takes you into a house or a prison or whatever. A door is a door. It is a portal through which you must pass if you're going to go from outside to inside. That is, if you're going to lawfully pass from outside to inside. You know, a thief can break in a window or come down another way. All right, Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, we'll close with this. The, um, the first half of the chapter here, well, verses 1 through 18, just under half the chapter, uh, in contrasting with Mosaic Law, points out that it's a shadow. It's not the form. It's not the substance. It's a picture pointing ahead, but it's not the substance. And as such, it is inferior. Because it's a shadow, not the substance, it, uh, it's inferior to the substance. And there's things it cannot do. 
One thing it could not do is uh, make perfect those who draw near. I mean, it, it served a function. Each year it served a function, but then the function had to be repeated the following year, year after year after year. You never got to the point where you could have a tetelestai statement, it is finished under Mosaic law. Because even if it was finished for this year, we're going to do it again next year. All right. So in those, uh, it did not have an eternal perfection. Otherwise, you know, if it had, then they could have stopped it. You know, had a year where they said, hey, we don't have to have it again this year. We did, we did everything last year. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The bulls and goats are painting a picture, but they're not identifying as a perfect eternal substitute. And so year and year and year, these things would go by. Now, that's in contrast to the reality of Jesus Christ, who once and for all sacrificed himself. And the um, Jesus Christ is the one who stands. He is the offering. He is also the priest who is offering himself. Uh, every priest, we're told in verse uh, well, we're told in verse ten, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's not going to be done over and over and over and over and over again, right? You ever take a Catholic mass? You know what that is? This re-sacrificing of Jesus Christ over and over and over and over and over again. It's blasphemy. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. But he, notice he, I don't see Mary anywhere in verse 12. He, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, Jesus Christ was the priest, the mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And the Roman blasphemy that calls Mary the mediatrix makes me want to puke. He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Sat down. For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Okay? Old Testament saints were sanctified, but not perfected until the finished work of Jesus Christ completed the picture. Now, because of that, verse 19, Therefore, an Old Testament believer never could have dreamed of this. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, an Old Testament believer would never have dreamed of going into the holy place. No way. Only the high priest goes in there and only one day a year with blood not his own. You mean more people get invited in? How does that happen? Like this. By a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. He is the veil. But to be the veil, He had to come in a body of flesh and identify with you and I and our weaknesses to be our substitute. Until He came in the flesh, He could not be the veil. He could not fulfill the veil function. He could not teach the veil principle or the door principle. So the door principle from John 10 is further developed as the veil principle in Hebrews 10. Not only do we pass through Jesus for shepherding activities, but we pass through Jesus for priestly activities by entering through the veil that is His flesh and appearing in the presence of God the Father as priests for our priestly service. Since uh, we have this confidence... 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, we're in there and we belong in there. We don't have to be nervous about being where we don't belong. You ever gone anywhere and you knew you didn't really belong there and you're just kind of waiting for them to catch you and throw you out? Okay? Now, you would never do anything like that, but, you know, anyway. And you know, you know what? I probably shouldn't really be here. I shouldn't probably be here. I'm in this place and they thought that, uh, they thought we were the band. (laughs) Well, we didn't tell them that, but they just kind of got that idea. They made, they assumed silly them. And they had a lot of food there ready for the band. Well, problem is, when the band shows up and half the food's been eaten, you don't belong there. Oh my goodness. I confess that. I confess that. I'm not delighting in unrighteousness. I'm just saying, if you're where you're not supposed to be, it's a bad thing. And we can enter into the veil. And we're supposed to be there. And so we don't shrink back. We draw near with a heart and full assurance. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And we are able to, this holding fast our confession. We've got coming up on Sunday in 1 Timothy, we've got the, uh, the uh, confession of the mystery of godliness from 1, Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, operating in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And the confession, the undeniable greatness of the mystery of godliness, that's us in Christ. So we belong there. The door principle is developed as the veil principle. We're not serving shadows. We're not serving pictures that are inferior that need to pass away when the reality arrives. We are in the reality a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What a delight. What a delight. Okay, that's the door. We'll return next week and move on to verses 11 through 18 and uh, examine this good, great, and chief shepherd, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank You for this day, for the truth of Your Word, for Your faithfulness, for all of Your faithfulness, Father, day by day, moment by moment. And we only know glimpses, Father. We just... We're too finite to even have an awareness of, of most of what you're doing. We just catch little glimpses here and there. And what we observe, the fringes of your ways, Job tells us, overwhelm us into how faithful you are beyond anything we could ask or think. So, Father, uh, if the glimpses overwhelm us, how much more the uh, ways that you demonstrate your faithfulness beyond our capacity to even acknowledge or identify. Thank you, Father, for being so perfect for being so faithful, for being so patient in bringing us through the processes of growth. Thank you, Father, for a ministry where the Word of God goes forth that we can grow. And I thank you for all of your your faithfulness day by day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.